Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 10th episode of the Nauticast, entitled Quality Family Time, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Tyrion 1, where Tyrion slaps. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he slaps. And holy shit, 10 episodes, dude. We're in double digits. What do you think about that? We're growing up, Jeff. I knew it would come a time when our, our podcast would start walking on its own two feet and stealing stuff in the lunchroom and making trouble for teachers. I'm very <laughs> proud. Couldn't be happier. I, I I feel very similar to that. It's, uh, you know, we're, we're very close to the end of this point. I think we only have 334 chapters left to go in A Song of Ice and Fire. So, um, you know, make sure you pay special attention to this episode because... You know, we're, we're rounding down the, the home stretch of, of the Nauticast. Um, no, I'm, I'm kidding. We, we've got many, many years left to spend with you guys. And we, again, appreciate everyone who's been listening to us. Um, as we talk about in every podcast, our spoiler warning, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Thanks to everyone who's been listening to us. I uh, hope you've all enjoyed last week's episode on Brand 2 and our special A Dance with Dragons is Better Than a Storm of Swords episode. Again, if you guys are interested in getting more of these types of episodes, those special kind of meta discussions, theory discussions, specific character analyses, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cast ASOIF and receive more rewards. So for you guys, this is actually the first episode that you've gotten as a reward tier for those who contribute $10 or more a month. You get the um, episode a few days early. For $10, you get it one day early, $20, two days, and $30 or above, you get the episode three days early. And some of you fine ladies and gentlemen have already gotten to listen to this episode before everyone else has. And thank you very much for those who have contributed to our Patreon. Absolutely. We're uh, very excited to start putting your uh, reward money to work, making our uh show sound more professional and polished and seeing what new experiments we can try. So thanks to everyone who's backed us. We uh, really appreciate it. And we look forward to making ever better content for you guys. Absolutely. And next week you will, we'll, we'll talk about this in the main, main episode. Uh, we're going to decide to do, or rather we're going to be doing another Patreon episode, probably at the end of the April timeframe. So if um, we'll let you guys know what that episode is going to be, as a little teaser, if you are interested in subscribing and you really don't need to give us five bucks a month if you're interested in listening to the special episodes as they come out. Um, but again, it's not necessary to give us money or anything like that, but we do highly, highly appreciate it. And we are very, very grateful for you guys. So uh, I thought we might do something a little bit different today. Usually we read Twitter, Tumblr, email or Reddit messages or tweets about some of our past episodes. But here, Emmett and I thought we might highlight some of the reviews we've gotten on iTunes. Uh, we deeply appreciate all of the iTunes reviews we've gotten. From what the smart people have told us, more reviews lead to more people finding us and joining in our fun. So if so led, write us a review and you know we'll, we'll read it. I read every single review. I know Emmett does as well. Emmett, why don't you kick us off with some of our favorite iTunes reviews? Absolutely. From Nikki Bolo, quote, I love this podcast. So happy I heard about you through Radio Westeros. Keep up the great work. 
Uh, and of course, so thank you to everyone over at Radio Westeros for the shout out. We super appreciate that as well. As we've been saying throughout, we're kind of standing on the shoulders of giants when it comes to podcasting about A Song of Ice yes. and Fire. And Radio Westeros does some of the absolute best and uh, longest running work in that regard. So thank you again. Yeah, absolutely. And their their sound quality is phenomenal. And that all goes to the hard work that Lady Gwyn and Yoke Boy put, put into it and put into the fandom as a whole because they've been around for, for a number of years in the Song of Ice and Fire community. Uh, BK Hoosiers 423 <laughs> wrote a review saying, quote, Jeff is less wrong than I thought, unquote. <sighs> Man. That's kind of a compliment, I suppose-ish. <laughs> I mean, I guess like if I don't want to get my feelings hurt, I can interpret it as a compliment. But I feel like I'm not wrong I, rec- I recommend you take it as a compliment. Yes, we're all we can. All, that's all we okay. can hope to be. Jeff is less wrong than people assumed we would be. That that's true. I guess we are. Um, uh, I I, I, can, I will take it as a compliment then. So thank you, BK Hoosiers four two three for the for the great iTunes review. I'm so thrilled and I feel honored by by such a review. And you can tell he means it, folks. From Siren 9, every week I shush my children, curl up to a chalice of wine, and listen to BBF and PQ discussing A Song of Ice and Fire. Can't wait for six plus years of this chapter by chapter reread. <laughs> P.S. If you don't enjoy listening to the podcast, you're ugly. Damn straight. This is, this is canon. Right. You're goddamn right you're ugly if you don't enjoy listening to this podcast. Uh, thanks, Siren, for the review. Uh, Braun.com, that is the amazing Matt from the Davos Fingers podcast, wrote us saying, quote, As Herb Brooks says in the film Miracle, all-star teams fail because they rely solely on the individual's talent. The Soviets win because they take that talent and use it inside a system that's designed for the betterment of the team. And that's precisely what makes this podcast so special, unquote. Wow, that was uh, that was I'm touched, man. I, I, I seriously, I, I'm I'm touched um, by uh by by what Matt Matt wrote, and that's uh that's really awesome. And you know, if you guys have a chance, uh, we were we were we've recommended it several times in the past, but please, please, please listen to the Davos Fingers podcast. Uh, you know, we're right now we're in a Game of Thrones, um, all the way back to the very beginning of the story. They're getting somewhat close to the end of a Feast for Crows and a Dance with Dragons right now. Um, their their latest episode, I think they're 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 going to be finishing up here. I think at the June time frame, if I'm remembering their schedule correctly. So they're they're way far ahead. So if you want to pick up for where, from where they are, they're they're talking about chapters at the end of the story, and we're at the very beginning of the story. So definitely check them out. Absolutely, they do great work. I'm a huge fan of uh, both of them. Uh, but Jeff, did you just accept a compliment comparing you to the Soviets? I got to imagine politically <laughs> for you, that must be just. You must be gritting your teeth like Stannis on that count. I, you know, it's it's the same thing with BK Hoosier from above. I, I have to take my compliments where they come from. So even if I'm being compared to the goddamn communists, I will I, I will still accept the compliment, gritted teeth and all. But no, but no, seriously, it's 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 very touching and moving that we have friends from across the fandom um, listening to us and, uh, and 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 writing us a review. I mean, it's 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 fantastic and super and. It's, it's meaningful to me. I mean, I don't, I don't know how to say it any better than that. It's meaningful to me, and that's that's cool. So thanks, Matt. Really appreciate it. I agree, that, man. man. No, it's, it's, it's very flattering, especially from, as we said, people who have already been doing this kind of work for a long time. As you know, Davos' Fingers has been doing rereading the, the series for a while now, and they do an excellent job. So it means a lot coming from them. On the other hand, you get a review like the one from Juicebin. Title review, quote, <laughs> Soy Boys. Body, quote, Very Feminine Hosts. 
one star. One star, which is nice. That's something. <laughs> we were doing something right. Along with disappointing his shallow retrograde ideas about gender, we managed to get one star out of him, Jeff. Very feminine hosts. Rude. Accurate, but rude. Well, I mean, I like to take care of myself. And if that makes me very feminine, so be it. I have nothing to compensate for. <laughs> Damn straight you don't. And I'm the prettiest princess and refuse to apologize for this. So most well, people like it. Some people don't. You can't please them all. And and that's fine if, if people don't like it. I mean, you are the pretty one. Uh, I'm the feminine one. And that's okay. We'll we'll just go with that going forward. And we'll, uh, we'll we accept that. I guess we're, we'll be soy boys for the remaining 334 episodes of this podcast. We'll, we'll make t-shirts. We'll make someone make t-shirts for us. It'll, it'll be the Ben and Jerry's logo, but with our faces and soy boys. It'll be a hit, <laughs> we'll get, It'll be an we'll internet get, uh, hit. Mallory, a.k.a. Sanrixian. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that. Use yes. right. I'm sure she'll she'll crucify me if I'm fucking it up, but we'll get that as a t-shirt for her. For her. We'll, uh, we'll enlist her help, and yeah, that'll be great. It'll be great. That is an excellent idea. But yeah, so by all means, continue to send in your iTunes reviews, whether they be uh, delightful or disparaging. We appreciate them all. And the funnier, the better. That's that's what I have to say. And the touching as well. We, we like the everything when it comes from people that's funny, whether it's touching, whether you're just saying, hey, you know, we enjoy the podcast. And, you know, it, it does help folks find our, our little podcast and kind of participate a little bit in, in what we do and what um, you guys do when you interact with us on Twitter, Tumblr, Reddit. Facebook, anywhere that you um, you listen to us. So again, thank you guys. Uh, and there, there's more than just those reviews. There's just some of the ones we selected. Uh, I, we do read all of the reviews. We really enjoy interacting with you guys. And it's, again, as we say every week, it is a fantastic and exciting experience to be doing this podcast with you, Emmett, and also with interacting with everyone out in the fandom. I agree. It's made my Grinch's heart grow several times. Although... <laughs> there, there is a pattern somewhat in the social media discourse about us, Jeffelsworth, that, yeah, you're you're the mean one and I'm the nice one, which is flattering, uh. but, that, you know, I'm just just bring up Renly and watch how watch how civil and reasonable and understanding I can be. So be aware. Yes, I, I might I might yes. I might come off as a hedgehog soft belly to be rubbed. But if you flip the hedgehog back over, he has spikes. <laughs> so. Be, be aware of my adorable hedgehog spikes, people. It's it's going to be great. We're coming up to Renly very, very soon in this uh, this 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 podcast. I get to make fun of Renly for being Renly, and I get to make fun of you about Sansa. So it's it's going to be it's going to be a great episode, folks. Mark your calendars for Sansa one. It's gonna it's gonna be a knockout. It's gonna be terrific. So um, again, thanks for reviewing us. Um, but unfortunately, this episode is not about Renly or about Sansa. Neither of them appear in, in this chapter. This is the first point of view chapter from the perspective of Tyrion Lannister. Um, and let us talk about Tyrion Lannister's first chapter. Tyrion Lannister is reading a book written 100 years ago by a maester about the scientific nature of the seasons while wolves howl around him. Snoring nearby is the Winterfell maester, Shale. It's close to dawn and Tyrion isn't much for sleeping. As we find out later, Tyrion rarely sleeps more than a few hours a night. Tyrion wakes the maester, tells him to keep his books safe, as some of them are very rare, with one, that is the Engines of War, being the only complete copy that Tyrion knows of. Tyrion leaves the library and encounters Sandor Clegane and his nephew Prince Joffrey. Tyrion tells Joff to go call on Lord and Lady Stark to give them his comfort. Joffrey scoffs. Tyrion slaps him. Joff states that he will tell his mother Cersei. Tyrion slaps him again and repeats his order to Joffrey that he should visit the Stark parents and tell him he's praying for them. Joffrey meekly retreats, presumably to do Tyrion's bidding. 
Senator Clegane tells Tyrion that Joff will remember that. I pray he does, Tyrion replies. Tyrion then heads off to join Jamie, Cersei, and the two other Lannister <coughs> Baratheon children at the Winterfell guest house. We get a side of the Lannisters we hadn't seen previously, them in their natural and unnatural state. Tyrion and Jamie are close, while Tyrion and Cersei have a cold relationship. Meanwhile, Tyrion's relationship with the other two children, Tommen and Marcella, is warm. Tyrion orders breakfast and reports that Bran is still alive. He catches a quick glimpse between Jamie and Cersei, and he begins to suspect that they played a role in the boy's fall. Still, even though Bran is alive, his back and his legs are broken. He'll never walk again, even if he survives. Seemingly, the dire wolves in their howling give strength to Bran as when the window was shut at the howling, Bran grew weaker, and then he regained his strength when the window was opened again to the howling of wolves. The twins hope to leave soon, but Tyrion reports that he plans to go to the Night's Watch and piss off the wall. The dwarf thinks that Robert will command Ned and everyone else to march south for King's Landing soon, but Tyrion is interested whether Bran will wake up and what he will say. Tyrion, my sweet brother, Jamie says, there are times when you give me cause to wonder whose side you were on. To which Tyrion replies, why, Jamie, my sweet brother, you wound me. You know how much I love my family. And that is the end of the chapter. And that is A Game of Thrones, Tyrion 1. Well said, sir. Uh, Tyrion is, of course, George R. R. Martin's favorite character. He's a very distinct and singular POV character, especially within this first book. And uh, this chapter, like Arya 1, as you can tell from Jeff's description, it's not exactly plot-heavy. Uh, last time with Bran 2, Jeff had to read a, a monolithic plot somewhere because of just the sheer <laughs> density of that chapter, the amount of different things that are going on, the way it pushes a lot of different meta-narratives forward. Tyrion 1, again, is much more like Arya 1 in that it's purely a character yes. introduction piece. It's about getting you used to a headspace, about what Tyrion considers important, how he sees the world, how he interacts with that world and his position within it more than it is advancing any kind of major plot point. In plot terms, it's kind of a buffer and breathing room after the intensity of the ending of Bran 2. Uh, it moves from here into John 2 when kind of everyone says goodbye to Winterfell. That's the end of this really suite of Winterfell-focused chapters. This one uh, is, is kind of connective tissue between the two. But that doesn't mean there's nothing interesting going on, because there is a ton of interesting going on in right. terms of character. Uh, Tyrion is... Oh, yeah immediately different from every other POV in the book in several important respects. He's not a parent or a young child, unlike everyone else we've had as a POV so far. He is an adult in his prime. He's in his mid-twenties. Uh, he's one of the Lannisters. He's not a, not a Stark, not a young exile Daenerys Targaryen. He's one of the, the quote-unquote bad family of the book, who we've just seen at their absolute worst, and who's been consistently framed so far as the enemies. But now we're brought, being brought within the mindset of someone of the Lion Clan. Uh, tonally speaking, Tyrion's chapters are much more humorous than other POV chapters in general. He's very quick-witted. <laughs> yes. He's very sardonic. His his inner monologue is always making fun of everyone around him. Uh, he's, he's constantly roasting the world, Tyrion. And that's very different from... We've had that kind of childish POVs like Bran, Arya, Jon, Danny, Or we've had adult POVs who are being very... You know, very strained and serious. Ned and Catelyn, you know, they certainly are not above cracking a joke, but the tone of their chapters is very mournful, uh, suspenseful at certain points. Not a lot, of, not a lot of room for humor. Whereas Tyrion is is always always finding a joke in things as a defense mechanism, as we'll get into later in the episode. Something that interested me going back through this chapter is that there are several 
strategies Martin uses to position Tyrion as analogous to us, the reader, and uh, yes. to be someone we identify with and consider our surrogate in this confusing world that we're just getting acclimated to that just shocked us so badly with Bran's fall in the previous chapter. Uh, most literally speaking, this chapter opens with Tyrion glancing up from a book at the sound of, of wolves howling. He's found himself in the library uh, reading late at night, uh, much in the way Sam Tarly will uh, do later on in Feast for Crows. He hasn't realized how long he's been here. Uh, it's it's kind of a mirror of us clenched over the book that first time, reading late into the night later <laughs> than we thought we would with this new book that grabbed our attention uh, yes. and being suddenly startled by a noise after the intensity of the end of Bran 2. Like, that's the position Tyrion's in. Just hearing a wolf howl and looking up from the pages that had engrossed him. And he's, you know, he's, he's someone whose attitude, as I kind of alluded to with the humor stuff, is definitely designed to be more in touch with a modern reader. He's very skeptical of the institutions around him. Again, he's very sarcastic, very humorous. Uh, he's 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 intellectually voracious. Uh, he he, see, he feels a, a touch anachronistic on purpose. Yes, where he's he's supposed to be a, a slightly more of our time, slightly more looking askance in a medieval fantasy world, and that also is perfectly appropriate. Right after what happened at the end of Brand Two, the sudden shock to our systems and the fall from innocence that Brand underwent, like it's as if. You know, Bran, Bran, the innocent child, looking at everything with stars in his eyes, remembering the man who gave him a blackberry. Like, he has fallen, and now we have moved on to a POV that results from that moment. A much more cynical, world-weary POV who has absorbed the lessons of the kind of events uh, that Bran just went through. You know, the Tyrion who has been, you know, facing discrimination and dehumanization his whole life, who's undergone the horrible things at the hands of his father and his sister... Uh, he he kind of represents the worldview we should we might now be mired in after Brand's fall uh, a much yes. more a much just a much more kind of cynical view on things that we see reflected in all his interactions throughout this chapter. Yeah, you know it's it's interesting about um, that is that um, I think Martin has said this in the past that he feels that he is most like two characters in the story, one of those characters being Samuel Tarly and the other one being Tyrion Lannister. Uh, Samuel Tarly, um, you know, trying to be polite here. I think there's a um, uh, George may feel some kinship with him based on uh, body type. Uh, that might be impolite. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, George, if you're listening to this. Um, for Tyrion, it's much more of that uh, sarcastic, uh, funny nature, which is something that I got to witness in George uh, as he was at Balticon a few years ago, back in 2016, I saw him live on, on stage and in the flesh and um, thinking about some of the things that he talked about. I remember he, he um, when they were, he was about to read the Aaron Greyjoy chapter, The Forsaken, uh, he called us sick motherfuckers. Uh, I remember that being a, something that George said specifically, which is uh, <laughs> very much Tyrion-esque here. Um, interestingly, too, Back in 2014, at Comic-Con, um, Martin reported that the, those iconic lines from Tyrion that we love so much, they take a lot of thought. They uh, it Apparently, it takes him several weeks at, at some times to write those funny lines from the perspective of Tyrion Lannister. So, um, he does put a lot of thought into Tyrion as a character and those funny lines. Um, that, that it's, it's such an interesting point about the anachronicity of of Tyrion Lannister because he's he's so similar to us as 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 in modernity, right? Again, like you said, 
we start with him in a opening a book and reading a book, and he's reading about the scientific nature of the seasons. Uh, he's also very interested in cultivating learning and cultivating knowledge. Um, his m- statement to Shale about preserving the books because some of them are very rare and old speaks to someone that is has a very different perspective than your average sword fighting battle for power individuals that we see throughout the story, whether it's going to be Ned Stark or Jamie Lannister, Cersei Lannister, Catelyn Stark. I mean, we we all love these characters, but Tyrion is intentionally set out to be different than the kind of swashbuckling sword fighter, although he does get a fair amount of that at, at Blackwater and in the Sorrows when he's fighting the Stone Men, uh, where, where Tyrion is brave. Tyrion is definitely brave and everything like that. But his main strength in this series is in being a person who's attempting to cultivate knowledge and attempting to learn as much as he can about the world around him. And that's in evidence here in this chapter. And uh, I, I do love the the Winterfell Library uh, as a setting uh, to start this chapter. I think it's a brilliant touch on Martin's part. And it, it does speak to, to Tyrion's character. I mean, like like Emmett said, this this is not a very plot heavy chapter, but it does give us a fantastic introduction to Tyrion Lannister and gives us a couple of great ways of doing that uh, through the setting. And I think the setting is through the setting being one of the ones that I enjoy the most. And the Wonderful Library, I would say, is a fantastic setting to open Tyrion Lannister to the reader. And it's a uh, it's a great way that we're going to be viewing him throughout the series as a man of knowledge and a man of learning, as well as a bunch of other things too. Certainly. It makes him an outcast right away. Like the first conversation he has with Septon Chael, immediately Chael is too asleep to understand him, so he has to repeat himself, <laughs> which I just love as a microcosm of Tyrion's overall interactions with the outside world that they never go quite right. And no matter how many times he tries to explain himself, it's just it never, he can never get quite get across what he wants to. I mean, you, you brought up a, a couple times when he does strap on a sword in battle, but he always comes at it as an outcast, whether you're talking the Green Fork, the Blackwater, the Sorrows. He always feels kind of shoved into or backed into that situation and uh, it never gets him the social respect to reclaim he it's supposed to and that he he wants deep down uh, because of course the other way yes. in which Tyrion is a social outcast is that he is a dwarf and that's it's something he struggles with in every single one of his chapters is how the world treats him because of it and how he treats himself because of it he's internalized a lot of the, of the hatred that goes with it uh, he's built up a lot of defense mechanisms that he was talking with John about in his first appearance, but he doesn't always practice them himself because it's he's he's it, he's they've just been worn down gradually by time and the amount of insults he takes, and it especially bites him when he puts forward effort and genuinely tries to be a good person and doesn't get anything back and doesn't feel no. love in return. And uh, of course, the the ultimate crucible for that with Tyrion is his family. And uh, family yes. dynamics are front and center in Tyrion's story. Even when you get to dance and he's no longer interacting with his family, he's constantly thinking about them and constantly thinking about ways to get back oh, at yeah. them. And he unleashes, you know, he's think- he's comparing Tywin to the Shrouded Lord and thinking about his sister's screams. He's six Egan on Westeros basically for no other reason than he hopes they wipe out Cersei's regime. He, he takes <laughs> over a sellsword company called the-, called the Second Sons, wink, wink. Like, you know, it's, this is... <laughs> Always what's swirling around Tyrion's head is is uh, the the hatred he's received from his family and the love he's still trying to get. Uh, but by the time you get to the end of Storm of Swords, he stops trying, and that's a big traumatic break for him. But you can see the seeds being sown even here early on. 
where you yes. uh, his with his two main interactions in this chapter. The first being with Joffrey, which is a completely dysfunctional relationship. <laughs> uh, the Tyrion slapping him to get him to behave properly, and then you have his interactions with Cersei and Jaime, where they're putting up a united front about Bran, and he's poking and prodding them for secrets, culminating in those great two lines you closed your summary with, where Jaime's wondering whose side he's he's on exactly, and Tyrion gives him that double-edged uh, sword of a line about how much he loves his family because of. Of course, it's established in this chapter that Tyrion has this very, very, very fragile ceasefire going on uh, with most of his family. Jamie's the one he loves, and even that relationship is soured by paranoia. So, you know, Tyrion is, he's, he's within one of the most powerful, richest families in Westeros. He has access to all these resources. Uh, you know, he's got this great developed wit, but he's, he's always constantly feeling on the edge, too, like he's about to be kicked out. And that all of society will turn on him purely as a dwarf. So, yeah, that yeah. tension is something that's evident throughout his chapters. That he's, you know, he's a powerful man. He makes important decisions. His his shadow stood as tall as a king. Maester Aemon will again call him a giant later on in the book. Uh, but he's in the back of his head, just like John with his bastard. He's constantly telling himself, "You're not worthy." They know you're not worthy, and they're going to kick you out at any second. Yeah, you know, it's a uh, it's it's interesting um, when we get. A, a later John chapter where you have, or actually Tyrion's next chapter, Tyrion 2, where you have Tyrion and John interacting and um, kind of continuing the dialogue we get from John 1, where Tyrion tells John that all dwarves are bastards in their father's eyes. And, uh, you know, you get later dialogue too, where in in Tyrion's second chapter about wearing these these types of monikers and, and things as, as armor, you know, that, that really tends to instruct John and uses as a model for himself, uh, allegedly. And there's some interesting dynamics that are in place with here in that things do get to Tyrion's head. He's not a robot that can necessarily deflect every insult. He does take umbrage in A Clash of Kings, as we talked about previously, to being called the Demon Monkey Man uh, when he's there as the hand of the king preparing King's Landing for the advance of Renly and then Stannis' armies. Um, but there's 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 definitely a, a terrific uh, dynamic in play of, of Tyrion attempting to um, deflect some of the insults that are thrown at him. Uh, you've got uh, in this chapter, you've got I mean, it's funny, but it's also uh, really wrong about uh, Sander Clegane. Uh, what's what's the, what's the line I mean, that that Sander does with uh, that kind of routine he does with uh, with Tyrion in this chapter? Like, oh, yeah, most of the spirits Tyrion of the night talking the, to. Tyrion starts talking to Joffrey and Sandor, and then a voice from nowhere, Sandor said. He peered through his helm, looking this way and that. Spirits of the air! Uh, the prince laughed, as he always laughed when his bodyguard did this mummer's farce. Tyrion was used to it. Down here. Yeah, that is yeah. that is a great little moment. of just the, That's just a perfect microcosm of the mockery Tyrion faces every single day. And, and you know, if you think about it, like, Sandor is... Uh, you know he's a knight, but he's 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 at, he's at the bottom of the nobility totem pole in terms of the lands. He, right. he doesn't have any lands of his own. He doesn't have any resources to call on. He's purely Cersei's lapdog, and Tyrion is a member of his you know the house to which Sandor is a vassal. He's one of part of the most powerful family in the Westerlands, one of the most powerful families in Westeros. But Sandor yes. can get away with this and knows he can get away with this. He can punch upwards and downwards at the same time. And he can get right. away with it in this fashion uh, because dwarves are so dehumanized in Westerosi society and because Joffrey, his patron, is there on hand to laugh and uh, 
his, give his blessing to it. So you right. you get this conflict that Donald Noy will bring up to John when he gets to the wall about how John was both has privilege and not that yes he might have been mistreated at Winterfell for being a bastard, but he still had access to all this power. And the same is going for here in Tyrion, almost in reverse. That yes, he you know he can bedeck himself in his father's gold, but he can't protect the world from sneering at him because of his his size. Correct. Yeah. Now it's it's definitely um, an interesting parallel between John and Tyrion. Um, that works in in a number of ways. Uh, you know, you've in all the way at the end of A Dance with Dragons, you have John thinking about some of the things that Tyrion tells him on the on the road to the wall but he can't remember who says it. it's kind of a little bit of a sad moment in in the books but uh but you know eventually at some point i think that john Tyrion will interact again uh, I, I i believe that'll happen at some point whether it's in winds or in a dream of spring well, i guess we'll have to find out um but but yeah so uh the the other great thing about this chapter is the uh is the other characters around him you have shale who's interesting i guess not really that interesting but he's he's there uh he's snoring but you also have cynical gain like you said you've got um cersei and jamie which is characters we've already been introduced to as and we've gotten a great introduction to them both in ned's chapters as well as especially in brand's second chapter which we covered last week but then you have joffrey baratheon which is the character that we love to hate probably one of the most the one that we love to hate in the story and uh, but yeah, like Joffrey's character kind of escalates, doesn't it? Yeah, well, this is something we've talked about before in previous episodes about how Martin kind of slow rolls the revelation of Joffrey's true monstrosity over the course of the first quarter or so of the book. Uh, really fully develops in Sansa one when he tortures Micah. Yes, uh, but here here we, we we really get a sense of how that's that's where we see how personally violent he is. This chapter is really where we see how callous he is, which is another key Joffrey trait that, you know, things that typically move other people don't move him. That he's talking uh, so breezily about how Bran should die and he hasn't visited the Starks and he cannot abide the wailing of women. Which, uh, that line is one of those lines that Joffrey says where it's like, that's direct from Robert's mouth. That's something that Robert said that Joffrey picked up on because it's something we later learn that Robert is the one person that Joffrey kind of looks up to and, and wants, wants to love him. Uh, and <laughs> like he, he cut open a mother cat Stannis reveals at one point to like both Robert yes. and Stannis talk about this. He, Joffrey cut open a cat to show Robert the kittens to make him happy at one point. Um, so a lot of, you know, Joff- a lot of Joffrey's puffed up bravado uh, feels like attempts to recapture what he saw from Robert. And uh, from what we know about Robert, like the whole not wanting to be around when Cersei gave birth and that all that sort of thing, that it does seem like to me like the, the wailing of women line is something that uh, Joff might have picked up from him. But Robert, what Joff has that Robert doesn't have is this complete insensitivity to the suffering of others, that this is all just kind of a bore and a joke to him. And uh, Tyrion is the one who has to quite literally... Uh, slap some sense into him yeah that's a it, it's you know I've, i have this line later on uh i i love when Tyrion slaps joffrey at the same time i, I find it um hashtag problematic at, as well that you have a 26 <laughs> or 27 year old man who's slapping a 13 year old child uh, i i do think that's um i don't i don't know i and, and i i kind of wonder whether george 
was using it for humor and didn't really like kind of think about it as like, oh, this would be funny if, if this psychopathic little shit gets slapped by, by Tyrion. But at the same time, you're like, this is an adult hitting a child that not, not for the best, really, if you think about it. But and, and it does. And the other thing, too, is um, as, as I think about it, you have you, you mentioned the, the example of Stannis uh, talking about how uh, Joffrey cut open the kitten. But Robert's response was to hit the child so hard he thought. Stannis thought that Robert had killed him, and then you have, uh, of course, he doesn't. But at the same time, like you, it, it, I have a visceral reaction to that. And then you have Tyrion here in this chapter slapping Joffrey around. It, it feels, I, 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 I'm not supposed to. I don't think, but I do have a feeling of sympathy for the kid, or maybe even pity would probably be the better way. And that he's been mistreated by these people throughout his entire life, whether it's his mother enabling his worst tendencies, which is a form of abuse, or his father's physical and verbal abuse towards the child. I, I, I do sympathize and, and, and pity Joffrey. I don't see any other way he could have been anything other than a psychopathic little shit, given the background that he's given. That, of course, does not whatsoever excuse his actions in any way whatsoever as we progress in the story, whether it's torturing Micah or in ordering Ned, Ned's death or shooting crossbow bolts at peasants who are coming to ask for food because they're starving. Like there's, there's so many awful things that Joffrey does, but it does have a source. And I do think that's a testament. I say this, I say this pretty much every single week that I find things that are a testament to George's writing. I do think it's a testament to George's writing that he builds a foundation for Joffrey being as terrible as he, as he is, instead of it just being that Joffrey is just evil or he's just innately wrong and uh, does the wrong thing and does the evil thing, whatever whatever he presumes, that there's a, there's a foundation for it. And that does work to give us a sense of who the character is, that even your villains, and Joffrey is a very clear villain in the story, have a bit of rounding in a way that some other fantasy characters, and I'll probably get flack for this, but characters like Sauron, at least in the movies, because I have only read the books one time, so don't jump down my ass uh, about Lord of the Rings, how they're not, they don't feel as round. They just feel that they're innately evil. They're Satan in the, in the story. Whereas Joffrey's not Satan in the story. That's Euron. Um, but he's, um, but he, he's, he's, he's an evil little shit, but he's an evil little shit because he was mistreated growing up and he's developed these tendencies and he's been enabled to be as bad as he can possibly be. Exactly. I agree with everything you said there. He's, he's a kid and he's framed that way in this scene in particular that uh, Tyrion Lannister reached up and slapped his nephew hard across the face. The boy's cheek began to redden. Like, how would you describe there? His nephew and the boy, not Joffrey and the prince. It's he's choosing yeah. words to emphasize how young Joffrey is and that Tyrion is in nominally a position of you know, he's an, he's an elder relative. There's supposed to be a nurturing aspect here. And uh, Joffrey, I'm going to tell mother. And then the boy looked as though he was going to cry. Instead, he managed a weak nod. And yeah, this is not excusing anything Joffrey says or does. But like what Tyrion does here, it might be cathartic in the moment because Joffrey is a toxic little asshole. Yes. But it doesn't change Joffrey's behavior, like long term. Like this isn't a teachable moment where Joffrey gets his act together. And Tyrion... He might intend to be. Like, he says, you know, I pray that the prince will remember that. And if he forgets, be a good dog and remind him. But, I mean, this is a way, and this is going to be something part of our Tyrion discussion throughout the series, in which he is like Tywin. That he is delivering this sharp lesson yes. that he hopes improves Joffrey's spirits. But he doesn't think about that that sharp lesson is likely just to make things worse. And just focus Joffrey's rage on him instead of actually cooling it in any any sense. 
Um, and yeah. that ties into to Sandor. I mean, Sandor is himself uh, someone whose intense anger and violence is driven by what happened to him as a kid. Uh, but he'll get someone in the form of Sansa who, whose reaction is to try to gentle that and try to find what's left of the humanity in him and wonder how he got that way and tell him that it's not, you know, to go uh, full goodwill hunting, that it's not your fault. So that helps Sandor yeah. a lot. And Joffrey... Joffrey never has anybody like that. I mean, there's a reason he's shown so being so clingy to the Hound throughout is because Sandor's the closest thing to a genuine parent he has, which is truly screwed up, given that it's Sandor Clegane at his worst. Um, yeah, Joffrey really never had anyone to tell him no in a, in a good way, in a teachable way. He never had... He just had Cersei indulging him and then Robert smacking him around when things got bad. And yeah, I mean, there's certainly... Uh, there's certainly a level of sadism, which I don't think any of that quite explains. Like, I, I would get Joffrey turning out purely disaffected and detached. Yes. And uh, a numb. I think the level of glee he takes in other people's pain, that's something that's just kind of ladled on top of everything else that's going wrong here. But yeah, the fact that the fact that when he behaves this way, this is how he's treated, I think is very telling in terms of how Joffrey got the way he was. I mean, there's the line from the from the show, uh, violence is a disease, and you don't cure a disease by spreading it to more people. And I think you see that yeah. within House Lannister being repeated over and over again, that they, this is how they try to fix things, and it just, it, it does not fix them. Yeah, I mean, House Lannister is constantly reacting, at least in the the four generations or so that we're aware of, constantly reacting against the the predecessors of, of, of them, the Tywin reacting against Titus's weakness and becoming this extremely harsh and brutal person because he watched his father being walked all over because people didn't respect him and his father was too generous to Tyrion reacting against Tywin and becoming very much like Tywin as the story progresses or maybe he's not quite he's not totally there yet but he's he's slowly getting there Jamie and Cersei having the same sort of interesting relationship with their father but then you have the kids too you have Joffrey who is reacting against his father, what he thinks is his father, which is Robert. But, um, but yeah, that, 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 that analogy kind of just fell through at the end, but that's okay. Um, because <laughs> it's actually not four generations of Lannisters. Joffrey's reacting against, against Robert, but, uh, I, I do have a good transition here. Um, there, that's not the only Lannister kids. There's two other ones there as well. And that is Tommen and, and Marcella who are very much not like Joffrey. Yeah, Tommen and Marcella are just tiny little doomed angels. We just we get a little time with them in this chapter when uh, Tyrion interrupts them having breakfast with uh, their their parents with Cersei and Jaime, and yeah, they're both bringing out like uh, Tommen is saying that he doesn't want Brandon to die. Uh, Marcella is giving a happy gasp at the notion that that Bran will live and uh, asks, "Will Bran get better, Uncle?" Little Marcella asked, and here's a great line: "She had all of her mother's beauty and none of her nature." <laughs> And Talman is described as being so unlike Joffrey in the way that Jaime and Tyrion were somewhat less than peas in a pod themselves. Uh, oh. So yeah, definitely in a chapter where Joffrey's obnoxiousness is ranked up another level, uh, ratcheted up another level, that is, uh, Talman and Marcella are emphasized as the contrast, as uh, kids who have turned out just fine, despite having these kind of terrible parents and this very absentee parenting style from Robert. And I think that's in large part because Cersei has probably just ignored them and hasn't really been whispering yes. poison to their ears the same way that she has with Joffrey. And Robert, too, has probably ignored them for the most part. But it is it is a radical difference among the three. Yeah, that uh, Tommen and Marcella are presented so sweetly. And this, I, don't know, I mean, 
it's easy to get too cynical about uh, how Martin presents sweet moments just to be disrupted later. But looking at how Tom and Marcella are framed here, I gotta I gotta think their deaths were already in the works too. They're just they're yes. just so adorable. In a chapter where they're talking all about like a young boy on the brink of death, that uh, I I, I got to imagine that their deaths were already in the work, even you know long before uh, the Maggie's prophecy about golden crowns and golden shrouds. I'm betting that Tommen and Marcella are already on Martin's hit list at this point. Yeah, I I feel similar in that Tommen and Marcella's death was probably planned from the beginning, even though we haven't seen that in the books yet. I do think that'll be something that will happen in the Winds of Winter. I think that'll be a a uh, major uh that'll be a major plot piece come come wins um it's kind of interesting too about martin's writing is that i think that he knew that they were going to die from the get-go but he hadn't figured out how and by sure. feast, feast and dance i think he had a and i think he figured out either and, and i know we've talked about this on twitter and elsewhere um he, he has a number of characters swirling around king's landing right now that look uh eager to do terrible things to to the two innocent children. Um, you've got Lady Nymeria, who is on her way to the small council. Uh, she is a talked about killing Tommen and Marcella. So with then she's also uh, she also has the knives that are hidden up her sleeves and things like that. So you have have that. She's also a poisoner. No, that's actually that's Tyene. Tyene's the poisoner. Um, but so you have that there, but you also have John Connington as well, who thinks that he has to be like Tywin Lannister and he has to root out um, the descendants of Robert Baratheon root and stem because they had in response to Robert and Tywin and all of them doing evil to the um, uh, to the descendants of Rhaegar Targaryen. And uh, so I, I do think that he didn't quite know how Tom and Marcella were going to die. He knew that they were going to die. But uh, by Feast and Dance, I think he had it pretty much worked out. Agree. That's when you start seeing, like you say, those secondary characters introduced to have the, the motives to take them down. But yeah, there you are. As Tyrion says, he compares Tommen and Joffrey to himself and Jamie as being unlike and peas in a pod. And we do get that interesting discussion between Jamie and Tyrion about, uh, about, about Bran's fate. And you get, again, this emphasis that Tyrion is kind of supposed to be more in line with our sensibilities when he says... Uh, Tyrion replied with a shrug that accentuated the twist of his shoulders. Speaking for the grotesques, I beg to differ. Death is so terribly final while life is full of possibilities. Right. And, uh, again, framed as both sympathetic in terms of being an outcast uh, for being a dwarf, an outcast within his family, and presenting an idea that, you know, uh, cripples, bastards, and broken men are people too. You know, this is something that will come up when he gives his his saddle over to to Bran later in the book. Uh, And that's... Uh, you know, this we t- we you mentioned earlier that John thinks back on Tyrion's words and forgets who they were from, and that's very poignant. And you do see some of the the best in Tyrion Lannister. I would argue you capture a lot in kind of these early Northern chapters where he he finds yes. this, these unexpected commonalities with House Stark. He reaches out to John. He reaches out to Bran. Uh, he feels bad about the Night's Watch and seems to surprise himself at kind of believing that the others are out there. Uh, so. You know, well, as we get into the push and pull of the best and worst selves of Tyrion Lannister, I think it's interesting that some of his most positive traits come up surrounding the Starks and surrounding Winterfell, uh, which is interesting because, of course, yeah. the uh, original pitch letter, he was uh, supposed to go to war <laughs> with the Starks and then slip over to their side once he fell in love with Arya. And, of course, Martin was in the in the process of uh, shucking that part of the storyline 
uh, while he wrote A Game of Thrones, but you can still see that Tyrion's relationship to Winterfell is, is going to be an interesting one. The way he thinks about House Stark is going to be an interesting tension for his character going forward. Yeah, and I, I do think that Tyrion will return to Winterfell at some point in the story. Um, and he has not returned to Winterfell, I believe. I think he's still on Dragonstone. I think we had this conversation not not one week ago, but he's still on Dragonstone uh, in season by the end of Season 7 in Game of Thrones, but it's clear that he's on the ship, uh, on, on the bang boat, I guess you can call it that, for the... Daenerys and John, he's on that ship heading back to Winterfell. So that's true. Um, he's, he's their escort. He's he's standing awkwardly outside the room uh, while the breeding couple bang. <laughs> that's true. That's where Tyrion's at in the show. But yeah, I agree. In the books, I think he's definitely coming back to Winterfell in the north as a kind of close yes. the loop kind of situation for his character. Yeah. So, and I think it's going to be interesting to see what um, what what he returns as because he's 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 obviously not going. I don't believe that he's going to be involved in any sacking of Winterfell. I think that plotline has been abandoned by Martin. Uh, we will talk about that a little bit more in depth towards the end of this episode. But but yeah, uh, I'm I'm curious to see what he will think about Winterfell now that it's been broken and ruined by years of war. By the time he returns, and um, yeah, it'll be interesting. Um, yeah, I'm so question for you we did kind of talk about Tyrion's status as as george's yeah uh, you want to start the likes and dislikes yeah 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 i think that works so uh, emmett what do you what do you like and dislike about this chapter it's it's not a i was actually kind of struck by that this chapter didn't feel very long to me when i read it and maybe that i'm colored by my perspective because brand two is a very long chapter i mean there's so many fantastic things that happen in brand two but I, I was I was curious whether things that you liked and disliked in this kind of shorter chapter as as you were going through it again for however many times you've you've gone through the books now. Yes, indeed. I mean, as you were kind of indicating there, the weakness of it, my dislike of it, is that not much happens. It's again yes. like Arya one in that vein, in that it's really purely a character introduction piece. It doesn't advance the plot at all. I mean, you find out that Bran's not dead. Uh, and that he's he may yet recover. Yes. So I guess that's the major kind of plot beat of the chapter is that you you follow up immediately on what happened in Brand Two, but Brand Two was full of all that political dialogue, full of so much rich history about Bran and the castle. Uh, so yeah, this is this is a lot like Arya One coming off Catelyn Two, whereas Catelyn Two was full of important plot information, and Arya One was kind of. Um, uh, more deliberately minor note about the characters and Tyrion 1 works the same way coming off Brand 2 which so that's not a bad thing it fits in structurally but it's just, that's why no one is ever going to rank this chapter as highly as Brand 2 it's no, because it's just no, no. not not as iconic not as memorable what I love about yeah. it and this is something again, we've already touched on a little bit is the dialogue and the internal yes. uh, most of Tyrion's internal monologue uh, it's just it's very snappy it's, it's very quick it shows a love of language which is something that's near and dear to Tyrion's heart as a character uh, that he he clearly delights in written language and spoken language uh, in their own right he's a he's a you know he, he's a he's a renaissance man in many regards and he delights yes. in such things um, I I like how yeah I like how he interacts with with Sandor uh, I like that again that Sandor kind of fails at intersectionality basically <laughs> because he doesn't he doesn't like he doesn't see Tyrion as a fellow outcast. He sees Tyrion as someone that he can be above, despite uh, being having his own physical, his own physical trait that people often look down on him for. Sandor doesn't find commonality there. He just finds a way to separate himself. 
Uh, so I think that's interesting. And I think uh, I, I really like, and this is something that will come up much more in terms of the saddle design when we get to Bran 4. Uh, I like Tyrion's little empathy for Bran. I think that <laughs> is an interesting thing. It's an, it makes him an interesting perspective to come to right after Bran too. Is in the 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 head of someone who, like as he says, will will see the worth in Bran and doesn't wouldn't want him to have a good clean death, but would want right. him to stay alive for the same reason that Tyrion stayed alive. And that's something that comes up in Bran's chapters. I was rereading the other day when the uh, the Karstarks show up later in this book to join Rob's army, and the younger ones mention, mutter something to themselves about how they'd rather die than live like Bran on how he must be a coward to, to not have killed himself already. Yes. Uh, and I like that I like that the first POV we get talking about Bran after his fall is someone who does not think that way and someone who would see that Bran still has a life worth living. So I like that as a nice, a nice note uh, in the dialogue in this chapter. And yes. that's something that, as I said, will come up later in the book. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective that um, Tyrion has this empathy for, for Bran and doesn't think that Bran should have a sword be put through him at this 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 time. Um, I think it's great that you have um, Tyrion being that speaking as a grotesque uh, is is good, and I think it's it's terrific to get that uh, that counter perspective to to Jamie's uh, kind of harsh way of, of looking at it. But at the same time, Jamie, I'm, I'm not saying that Jamie is is right in this, but he does have a point in that. You know, there's there's a point that's that's brought up later on, and that Tyrion says that had he been born like a peasant, he would have been left out in in the woods someplace to be to be killed off. But because he was a born a Lannister, he has special privileges, and the same kind of applies to Bran Bran too here, and that he has special privileges in being a um, uh, in in having a, the lineage of of House Stark, which grants him the the ability to have a relatively comfortable life provided he survives which of course we know that he does um my, my likes are actually very similar to yours uh for this chapter uh i love the dialogue i love i i love against my uh my my best uh intentions i love when joffrey gets slapped i think that's fun i really shouldn't think that's fun it's it's it is hashtag problematic and it's also actually problematic as well i mean depending on what your definition of, of what that is um as we talked about before I love the seeming modernity in Tyrion's character in a, in a medievalish setting. Medievalish setting. I'm gonna cannot pronounce words again. That's okay. I'm, I'm just on a, as a, on a part of a podcast where I can't pronounce words. It's all good. Um, and then again, like you've you've talked about Tyrion's observational skills, and I think it's cool that he is figuring out that Jaime and Cersei had a hand in Bran's fall. Uh, that's that's excellent. Um, my, my dislike of this chapter is that the um, the writing is a little bit wonky, and I, I pulled out two examples that I felt were uh, maybe they're 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 not they're probably the probably the worst, or rather they're probably the the ones that I didn't really like a lot, and that is quote something about the howling of a wolf took a man right out of his ear. I mean, I'm trying my best to not be too goofy about it, but that is not a terrific sentence right right there there's a second clause to that sentence but it's it doesn't really help that that first clause um and then there's a second chapter it's rather there's a second example when Tyrion is thinking about Senator Clegane he says the man did have a temper um just just write the man had a temper George I mean that's that's it's really just an easier way to, to write it that communicates what you're trying to communicate you're throwing in extra words and an extra 
bit of syllabalism here that doesn't work as well. Um, but but again, I, I I like this chapter a lot. I think it's a it's a it's a good chapter. My dislikes are on the writing side this this time around. Um, but they're just they're they're more minor than anything else. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I I like this chapter. I I wouldn't rank it as high as Brand Two. I wouldn't rank it as high as Catlin Two. Uh, I would rank it probably a little bit better than Aria One and John One for sure. I agree. It's got a little more sparkle and a little more personality to it, I think, than Arya 1 and John 1. Again, because Tyrion is a more self-aware kind of character and a more kind of um, a more kind of intimate, immersive kind of character. I mean, I've compared him and the Lannisters to uh, Scorsese movies a few times, and you definitely get that sense with Tyrion that you can, you can hear the voiceover, like the classic Scorsese, let me lay out <laughs> exactly what's going on for you voiceover with Tyrion. So I, I do love that about him that kind of elevates this above the other kind of character over plot chapters, uh, like with John and Arya. Although I do agree there are moments when his inner monologue feels a little overwritten. And uh, yeah, this I mean, it's something we've touched on in previous episodes, that there are moments early on in the first book where the writing does feel a little stiff, that Martin's yeah. kind of finding his footing in this particular world and uh, falls back on, which a lot of fantasy does fall back on overwriting as a crutch when you don't have any anything right. actually dramatic going on. You just you like you said you add syllables you add adverbs you you clutter up your sentences, which is fine if you're trying to in bits and pieces if you're trying to overwhelm your reader. But this is a very <laughs> minor chapter. This is a character centric chapter, like Brand Three. You know his his vision quest chapter, which we're gonna we'll get to before yes. long. That's where you want. That's where you go all in on your sentences, oh, yeah. and that's where you make them crazy. Uh, you don't do that. You don't do that here. No, there's, there's a few examples of that. I agree where. He's a little too in love with... I mean, it comes from an enthusiastic place, right? He's a little too in love with Tyrion's headspace and his way of writing him. And so sometimes yeah. he oversells his point. So I, I agree. That is that is something to watch for going forward. Yeah, and, and the, the thing about it, too, is that as Martin progresses in writing A Song of Ice and Fire, I strongly feel that he improves in his prose as he's progressing um, which is something we brought up in our Dance with Dragons is better than a Storm of Swords episode where we think that the prose is better in dance than, than it was in Storm. But, you know, Storm is better than Clash and Clash is better than, than Game of Thrones, in, in my, my humble opinion. Um, but some of these early, this early stuff. And again, the interesting thing about this chapter is that it's written like in the early 90s. We're, we're talking like 1992, 1993 is when he wrote the, the first draft, at least of this chapter. So um, Martin does improve. But some of these kind of wonky, not well written or rather overwritten sentences, they might flow from kind of this early. What was it? What is it? You always say the early fantasy genre. What you, how's the, how, what's the phrase you always use? Um, I'm not sure. That's okay. Uh, I'm forget forgetting my own catchphrases, Jeff. That's not good. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> That's but yeah. All good. But yeah, I know I know what you're talking about. It does it does feel kind of musty, and like it's from a previous generation of fantasy book. It's not as not quite as gripping or yeah. compelling as some of the more signature stuff in this in this in this first book. It is that. But one of the interesting things about this chapter is that even though it's not intensely plot oriented, it lays a whole lot of groundwork for the rest of the series uh, in a number of of interesting ways that are worth exploring in significant depth. Absolutely. Like I said earlier, the family dynamics are front and center in this chapter. Uh, and it, it, they, they present Tyrion as kind of uh, an outcast figure who has these antagonistic relationships with the world around him. 
and with the people that are supposed to be closest to him. And we can see that the ripple effects from this chapter flow out over the course of the next few books. Obviously, the most uh, iconic example is Tyrion slapping Joffrey. That will happen again after the King's Landing riot. Tyrion will also get in Joffrey's business throughout his time as Hand, including over the beating <laughs> of Sansa Stark, uh, the, the the treatment of Sansa after the the uh, Red Wedding. Uh, there's there's a repeated antagonism between Tyrion and Joffrey, with Tyrion regarding Joffrey as, as a completely unworthy king, but also just a, his bratty nephew that needs to keep in line. Whereas Joffrey increasingly sees Tyrion as his enemy. Uh, culminating at the Purple Wedding when Joffrey brings out the, the dwarves to joust to humiliate his uncle. Uh, and then, of course, Tyrion is accused for Joffrey's murder. Uh, but, you know, that yes. you can already see the seeds being sown for all of that here with with Tyrion's instinctive reaction to slap Joffrey and Sandor's uh, the doom-laden words that the prince will remember this little lord, because, of course, he will. And that will rebound on both of them as the series goes on. We also see Tyrion's setting up his antagonism with his siblings, with Jaime and Cersei, with those last lines, as we've mentioned a couple times, setting up that Tyrion's loyalties are not perfectly in line with them. And even the the line that Tyrion has about how uh, uh, during all the terrible long years of his childhood, only Jaime had ever shown him the smallest measure of affection or respect. And for that, Tyrion was willing to forgive him most anything. Not anything. Most anything. Yes. Because, of course, at the end of Storm of Swords, there will be a revelation that Tyrion cannot forgive Jaime for yes. regarding his first wife, Tysha. Yes. So you can already see that being set up here that the one relationship Tyrion really does love within his family, within his social environment, the one person he feels does respect him, uh, the the sole source of his warmth, that, that too is going to get taken away from him. That's really when he shatters inside. And, uh, you know, obviously Martin has taken Jamie in a number of different directions from this book that he may not have had fully in mind at the time. But I do think you look at that line, you look at the setup with Taisha later in this book, and I think Martin definitely already had that reversal in mind where uh, only only Jamie showed me affection and respect, but there was this one thing he did to me that, that I'll never be able to forgive him for. And then you see Tyrion versus Sandor. That's not as, you know, dramatic or prominent a relationship as Tyrion versus Joffrey or Tyrion versus his siblings, but it will come up again in Clash of Kings when Tyrion orders Sandor to face the fires of the Blackwater, and that's what causes Sandor to finally run for it. And Sandor seems to develop a hatred of Tyrion for that uh, because of that, as he later comments to Arya that he, he should have ran off with and even raped Sansa before leaving her for Tyrion. That's how like intensely Sandor feels about this. So yes. a lot of a lot of setup in this chapter about antagonism between Tyrion and the people around him, uh, and that's that that again is something that separates him out from other POVs who we've had who, frustrated as they may be, uh, they don't have like John and Arya are frustrated, but their instinct is to run away because they're kids, right? Like they don't have these deep set. Uh, antagonistic dynamics being set up that are going to dominate their story going forward the way Tyrion does here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because it, it, House Stark and House Lannister contrast each other so well in that, you know, Sansa and Tyrion, or rather Sansa and Arya, maybe as different as night and day are, but they're still, ultimately, they, they love each other. And I think ultimately they'll work together um, towards the end of the series. I don't get that impression whatsoever from from the Lannisters. The Lannisters are incredibly antagonistic to each other. It's like the... the the Starks are all on the same team. They might disagree, but at the end of the day, they're all on House Stark. They're all on Team Stark, rather. 
the Lannisters are, um, they are going to disagree and their disagreements are going to be heated and they will be fatal as we find out at the end of A Storm of Swords with uh, Tyrion killing Tywin Lannister, his father. Uh, his alleged father, rather. And, um, y- you know, you, the, you, the, this interesting, too, is, is I always um, – and I think of people who are smarter than me have, have talked about this, about how Tywin's raising of his kids contrasts so strongly with Ned's raising of his kids. And, and I think one of these ways that we see this is in how well that they're working together. You know, uh, at the end, in Feast for Crows, Arya – preserves Needle because our because Needle was Jon Snow's smile. Sansa thinks warmly of Lord Commander Jon Snow and thinks about him as her brother. Bran um, is thinking about his, his mom and his dad and he's seeing his dad in in the Werewood Tree. Whereas in the for the Lannisters, you know, Jamie burns Cersei's letter. Tyrion wants to rape Cersei and murder rape and murder Cersei and then also murder Jamie as well in a dance with dragons. He's fantasizing about this and thinking about his father being in hell. And you really get a sense of that antagonism as it's beginning to unravel. And I don't think we've seen the full extent of it either. Um by the end of A Dance of Dragons, I think it's going to continue to progress towards the end of the series. Um with Valencar stuff that's going to be a big part of Jamie and Cersei's endgame arc, I believe. And um, who knows what will happen with Tyrion um, and, and Jamie, whether that relationship will ever get on the mend. I, I have some doubts about it in the books. Uh, in the show, it does seem to have been on the mend, although, again, the Taisha part of the Tyrion Jamie relationship is not in the show, which is one of those, the, one of those cuts about the show that I think fundamentally alters relationship that for for the worse i would say i agree I and mean, on the one hand i get it because it's just hard to do it's hard harder to pay off foreshadowing in the show because you have to you can keep bringing things back up much more organically in a book than you can with the show uh so i get that they maybe didn't feel they could organically string taisha in enough times that people would remember and give it give a damn when you got to the end of season four. So I'm, I, I'm trying to extend sympathy in that regard, but it does it yeah. it does deflate that whole scene where Tyrion because you know Tyrion climbs to Tywin and Shay's bedchamber because he's already been pushed over the edge by what Jamie told him in the books. You know that he's he's already like there's that moment when he puts all his rage and fear and pain into slapping Jamie, like that's what leads him to confront Tywin. Uh, in the in the show, it's where we're like Jamie lets him go, and they have a nice final handshake, and it seems almost like a healing moment for Tyrion. And then you get the devastating moment with Tywin and Shay. So it doesn't quite right. work as well in terms of tone. And yeah, it does. I mean, overall, I think the show has flinched away from the darker implications of where Tyrion ends up in dance, and I don't particularly appreciate that. And I think one of the ways that it's yes. less interesting is that you don't have that Tyrion still has this relationship back home. That he loves and was, if anything, strengthened by the end. And that makes his downfall a little less hard to... It makes it a, gives it a little less believability because it's so believable in Storm and Dance because, as I said, this his one hook, his one connection, his one tether to the rest of the world has now been broken. Uh, so I understand why they maybe thought they couldn't pull it off, but I am... I, yeah. I, I do agree. But as well as foreshadowing of stuff that 
comes to pass in later books. There's also the topic we've touched on multiple times throughout this podcast so far, and that's kind of abandoned foreshadowing stuff that was pointing at ideas that Martin had in his original concept for the series, his original pitch letter that we've seen, but later didn't end up in the book, so they're just kind of left here as vestigial remnants of the story that was. In this case, uh, the book that Tyrion is reading at the beginning in the Winterfell Library is called Engines of War, and I wonder if him reading that in the context of specifically the Winterfell Library was a hint at what was supposed to happen with Tyrion in the original pitch letter, which was him leading the attack on Winterfell. Uh, of course, that later got yes. passed off in part to Theon, in part to Ramsay, in part maybe to Stannis when he infiltrates Winterfell in the Winds of Winter. But that may have still been on <laughs> the the docket in, in Game of Thrones, because later on in Bran 4, we see the Direwolves reacting very negatively to Tyrion, even though he's there to help Bran. So it might have still been in Martin's mind at this point to have Tyrion lead the attack on Winterfell and having him read a book about uh, siege engines and such inside Winterfell in his first POV chapter may have been uh, a nod at that. Yeah, I think that's a excellent catch on uh, on your end. And I think that's a probability that Martin had originally intended that to be something that would be included in Tyrion's attack on, on Winterfell. Um, I, uh, I was interested to, I, 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 I'm curious whether this, this might come up Again, because this is the only copy of the book, and it seems to be a very important book. Um, in the Winds of Winter, it, it seems likely that at some point Tyrion will be a part of Daenerys Targaryen, her army, her entourage, and that they will intersect, according to George, uh, from a 2014 interview with him in said some later in the book in the Winds of Winter. And I wonder whether maybe that intersection will be in some sort of siege, right? Maybe Volantis, maybe Pentos, maybe one of those slaver cities that's along the demon road which i think will be an interesting um place to be at uh in the winds of winter and maybe Tyrion's knowledge of how to besiege a city will come into play here and that will be some way that he'll use his knowledge that he uh, got from these this 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 book that he read back in winterfell all the way back in game of thrones and that'll be his i don't know kind of his uh his his, his doorway into the uh, inner graces of Daenerys Targaryen. That's a great point. I hadn't considered that, but there is that line from Tyrion, I think six, six or seven in A Dance with Dragons, where he outlines what his strategy would be if he was in charge of a Kalasar, how he would take Volantis, yes. that he would feign towards uh, uh, all those other, Volantheris and yeah. uh, uh, whatever the other, like smaller cities north of Volantis, he would feint towards those and then uh, ride hard for Volantis itself. So that might be a, a clue at what he, w- he would advise Dany to do <laughs> in terms of taking these free cities. I agree. I mean, as you said earlier in the episode, so much of Tyrion's character is about the accumulation of knowledge uh, and, you know, that going from everything from war machines to dragons themselves. So he's certainly, certainly going to be useful for, for Dany in that regard. Yes, it's going to be a huge part of the uh, the plot in in The Winds of Winter and War most likely in, in the winds of winter. Um, on that same note, uh, to go back to the besieging and sacking of, of Winterfell, which was Tyrion's original plot purpose uh, midway through the original trilogy that Martin envisioned back in 1993. Uh, there's a great line from the letter, and I've, we've read part of it before, but I, I figure I'll read it again. The, the part of it says, quote, Exiled, Tyrion will change sides, making common cause with the surviving Starks to bring his brother down, that is Jamie, and falling helplessly, gosh, I cannot laugh when I, th- when I talk about this, and falling helplessly in love with Arya Stark while he's at it. Uh, uh, unquote. This lines up really nicely with uh, Jamie's line of 
Tyrion, my sweet brother, there are times when you give me cause to wonder whose side you were on. I think that was originally intended to foreshadow Tyrion eventually changing sides to to House Stark. What's really fascinating is that Tyrion does change sides from House Lannister, but he changes it to House Targaryen, which is a um, interesting. I don't know. I don't know. What do you what do you think about that? You think that's I've always been really curious about that point that Tyrion is originally supposed to go change sides to House Stark. George R. R. Martin decides that he's going to change it so that Tyrion switches sides, uh, turns cloak against House Lannister, well, or House Lannister turns cloak against him, depending on your interpretation. But then they go to House Tar- but then Tyrion goes to House Targaryen. I'm not, I've always been curious about George's thought process, whether he, Maybe he didn't even envision Tyrion as a dragon rider at this point. Is that, is that a possibility in your mind? That's a good question. You do get some foreshadowing in this first book that suggests the dragon riding part was already on the on the table. He talks to John about wanting a dragon and you know having burning fires in Casterly yes. Rock and imagining his father and his sister inside them. So I think that might have been already there. But I mean, maybe I mean because the okay, so the original plan was for him to be in this love triangle with Tyrion with Arya and John. <laughs> So maybe I know, right? <laughs> Sorry, so maybe maybe he just kind of swapped out Arya for Danny and left out the romantic part on Tyrion's side, and because you know, eventually, I think what's eventually the long term plan in both book and show is uh, Danny and Tyrion teaming up with John. Right. So maybe maybe Martin reconfigured things to that. Like what he what he preserved was uh, Tyrion teams up with woman and also Jon Snow. Okay. Uh, and that he may have just uh, taken out the antagonistic love triangle part and made the woman Danny instead of Arya uh, when he realized that he wasn't going to be going ahead with either the love triangle plot or Tyrion attacking Winterfell. Uh, and then he decided because yeah, at some point, at some point, I guess the question here is when did he decide to send Tyrion east? Yes, and they, he decided to make Danny and Tyrion team up because that clearly was not the original concept. So. Yeah, I guess I guess sometime while he was writing a Clash of Kings, yeah, decided to keep Tyrion in King's Landing for a couple books. I'm guessing is when he made that call. I think you're right in that it was probably Clash of Kings is when he decides to send Tyrion east. Um, but what's interesting is, um, and this comes from I believe, uh, and I'm kind of speaking extemporaneously, so p- please correct me, readers or rather readers, listeners, if if I'm wrong. Um, but in the season seven outline or one of the scripts, it's it's made explicit or maybe it was, it was in an interview where that Tyrion is falling in love with Daenerys Targaryen, whereas at the same time that Daenerys Targaryen is falling in love with Jon. So I think your idea that Danny becomes the focal point of this love triangle between Jon, Tyrion and Danny um, is is a sound one. Uh, that might have some evidence in, in the show. I've always I, I'm curious how that's going to play out. In season eight, whether there is, there's going to be any ramifications of it, because Tyrion's final scene in season seven is him standing outside of the door while Johnny, while Johnny, while while, while John Aris is occurring inside the uh, the bang boat of the bang room, and um, I, I don't know, I I, I feel uh, like there could be they could do some stuff with that, but at the same time, you have six episodes to kind of wrap up the entirety of Game of Thrones, and I've I've always been curious whether that's gonna well, that's going to play out in any way. Yeah, there's bound to be a lot of dangling threads because, as you say, they're working with so little time and so many characters. So I would bet that gets dropped in going forward in season eight. But I am interested uh, to see. Yeah, the, the nature of Tyrion and Danny's relationship is something I'm very interested about in the books because I don't think it's going to be 
as positive as it's in, depicted initially in the show, mm-hmm. and I don't think it's going to be the one-sided thing of Danny going wrong and Tyrion freaking out. Yes, in the books, I think I think they're gonna both they're gonna make each other worse for at least a while. I think they might eventually help pull each other back, or John will help do that. <laughs> but I think in terms of their initial meeting in the books, they are, they are both in a very dark place right now, and both in a perfect dark place to encourage the other one, given what Tyrion knows about. Uh, young Griff and can encourage Danny in that regard, yes. and Danny can kind of give Danny and her dragons can give Tyrion uh, the real power to kind of unleash his his anger and his grief uh, and his confusion because he, he was at the bottom of the totem pole throughout Dance without much power, right. uh, but Danny can provide him that power. So, yeah, I think that's going to be the nature of the relationship at least at first. We'll see how it goes how it goes long term. Yeah, I guess we will have to see. Um... They talk about a few other um, more minorish things. They're not so minor, but they're interesting. Um, I think this chapter really sets up the burning of the Winterfell Library in Catelyn Three really well. He, it makes it poignant because Tyrion makes specific reference to all the rare books. With again, as we talked about, the book Engines of War being the only complete copy that Tyrion has ever seen. Um, Winterfell Library burns with many of the books being burned in that. That um, in the fire that started by the cat's ball, uh, we we don't actually know whether uh, engines of war survives the fire, um, but it's the, a possibility, perhaps even a probability that it ended up burning up because what was they talk about that some of the pages of the scrolls are so old that they're like brittle sort of thing. Um, I think that's what Tyrion says in the in this chapter. Uh, so it's it's sad and. I always, I always, I hate. I mean, I, I like it and I hate it. I hate in fiction and I love in fiction how if there's a library, it has to be burned. Like I just, I, I, I know, right? That's the rule. That is the rule. It's like if there's a wall, it has to come down. If there's a library, it has to be burned. And I get it. The Library of Alexandria was burned. Maybe who knows? They actually don't know what happens. I mean, that is what is commonly believed, but historically, they actually don't know. Sort of the same reason. Sort of the same thing. Like what happened to the Library of Alexandria? What happened with the um, the nose of the Sphinx? No one actually knows what happened with that either. But people have true, true. Common theories have developed about it, but they're not historically accurate, or they may not be historically accurate. Probably be the better way of putting it. Yeah, it's 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 a damn shame, and we see it again developing, arguably in the Winds of Winter with Old Town, which is coming under attack by Euron Greyjoy. Yep. And his reavers. Uh, so we're, we're probably going to see an even larger version of that go down there. Absolutely. But I agree. It's always um, it's, it's it, it always tugs your heartstrings when you see a, a, a library go, especially because in, in, a, in a medieval fantasy world, because we, from our perspective in the modern age, we think of those libraries as like the bastions of the future, yes. like the, the seeds from which the Renaissance will spring. Yes. And so you know you're. You really, you really feel that loss because you feel like it's a whole future going up in smoke. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I mean, that's it's interesting how that our modern perspective informs our feeling and our emotions about these events because we assume that because in our history, of course, the medieval world leads to the Renaissance. Of course, it's not really nowhere near as clean as that as as it, it seems in our uh, it, as it happened historically. But it's it, that is a a thought and a, a thought pattern that's in common uh, usage, if, especially if you've only taken history through through primary and secondary school. There's uh, one other final uh, thing that I wanted to talk briefly about. So uh, one final thing before we go into a bit of character, more deeper character discussion about Tyrion is that um, I was curious and I wanted to get Emmett your thoughts about this. Um, 
there's a line that Jamie says in this chapter. He says, quote, even if the boy that is Bran does live, he will be a cripple, worse than a cripple, a grotesque. Give me a good, clean death, unquote. So I I took this line to be either foreshadowing of Jamie's eventual fate, but I also see where Martin is um, foreshadowing more certainly about Jamie losing his hand. That feels almost kind of like that was in the cards at this point in the story because you have this line that lines up really nicely with uh, with what happens with Jamie when um, um, not Fargo Hode, who's the dude who the Dothraki guy who cuts his hand off with the the Arak. Oh, uh, Zolo. Zolo, yeah, the dude's name, yeah, I think. Zolo, right? Who's still alive as by the end of a Dance of Dragons? So we might see him pop up again in the yes, story. Uh, so, do you think that's foreshadowing Jamie's fate about him getting a good clean death? It could well be. It could well be something we talked about before. Is like there might have been moments where Martin was going back through the book and a line stuck out to him, and he decided to do to write something based on that rather than having been deliberate foreshadowing when he wrote the line. Yes. Because, I mean, there is just, I mean, Jamie's motivation in this scene is that he doesn't want Bran to spill the beans. Right. So he could just be saying, you know, that it could just be he wants Bran to die for that right. reason uh, and for no other one. But it does, it, uh, it, it does reverberate, ironically, upon reread. And it does, what makes me think it might be that Martin might have had what happens to Jamie in The Storm of Swords in mind at this point is because uh, that fits Jamie's character so well that he... The self-examination he has to go through after losing his hands, at this point, he, he would rather die than do that. Right. Like, he doesn't want to go back. He doesn't want to face weakness. He doesn't want to go back through his life. He doesn't want to really confront the memories about the Mad King. Uh, so, you know, if he died in battle, he wouldn't have to do any of that. It's only when he's wounded and forced to live that he has to face that. So it is... Uh, it is it is profound enough, given what Jamie goes through, that makes me it makes me want to think that it's foreshadowing because it does fit so well with not just what happens to Jamie, but how his mindset changes. Yeah, I, I like to think similarly. Um, I, I the thing too though to can, that I think about is that I'm not sure that Jamie is going to get a good clean death. I mean, you have that line that Cersei gives: "Is that we came into this world together, we'll go out of this world together." If Jamie is the Valonqar, and, and I am in that camp, I think a lo- the majority of people are, but that doesn't necessarily mean the theory is going to pan out. I, I, I can't imagine Jamie having a good, clean death. I, I don't think he'll survive the series. I, I think that's not going to occur necessarily, although I can see it potentially occurring uh, with, with Brienne being in there and you know hoping that Jamie and Brienne end up together and live happily after after which probably will not occur unfortunately um but i don't i don't necessarily see it being a good clean death i see it being a very sorrowful sad bitter experience for jamie the, the way he goes out whether it's going to be Tyrion coming back and killing him um that that feels kind of right to me um offhand um but but i don't know i don't know i i do think that it's definitely um I, I do think that you're right in that Martin, this could be an example of Martin foreshadowing Jamie losing his hand, but it could also be something that George is going back through a Game of Thrones as he's preparing to write a Clash of Kings and or a Storm of Swords and thinks, aha, that's it right there. So, you know, Tyrion loses his nose, Jamie loses his hand. Of course, that's exactly what we're going to do with Jamie's character going forward. But, you know, it's again, one of those questions that we said last week would be, great to ask George, like, when did a specific idea come into your mind? Like, when did, when did Euron come into existence in your mind as being this 
um, psychedelic endgame villain? Or when did Jamie losing his hand come in mind? Was it in the cards from the beginning? Or is it something that you uh, that you ended up writing into the story as you're rereading a Game of Thrones and thought, terrific, great. It'd be awesome to have Jamie's uh, the thing that makes Jamie strong and powerful, his right hand, his sword hand, then losing that. Um, but yeah, I think it's 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 a fascinating topic of discussion and uh, a good question. Maybe at some point to ask George at a convention. So if any of you guys are going to be seeing George anytime recently, anytime soon, rather, um, feel free to ask him that question on our behalf. Well, add it to the list of infinite George. Questions. Yes, yes. I mean, gosh, if we put our heads together and ask all the questions we would have, it would be our Google document would be hundreds of pages long. Uh, It'd be as long as T-Wow, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt whatsoever. Um, so uh, normally we would do something like a theory discussion. We would transition to a theory discussion or a bad theory. Uh, the thing is, we already kind of talked about Tyrion Targaryen, which is a major Tyrion theory. And then we were also talking in pre-production about, is Tyrion going to be a ultimately a villain in the story? And we both felt that this chapter was not the best chapter to talk about that, uh, even though it's a fascinating topic and I'm sure it'll come up multiple times in smaller permutations before it becomes the big discussion that it will be. We'll find a great spot for that. Um, but instead we thought it might be a bit more fun to kind of delve into, uh, something that we originally had as foreshadowing, uh, well, actually I called it not foreshadowing in the document, uh, but that kind of speaks about Tyrion Lannister as a character and kind of delves a little bit deeper into it. So uh, here, one of the lines that kind of stuck out to me in this chapter was this line that Tyrion says, quote, Tyrion wondered what it would be like to have a twin and decided that he would rather not know. Bad enough to face himself in a looking glass every day. Another him was a thought too dreadful to contemplate, unquote. Um, so I, I call him, I'm calling this not foreshadowing for Tyr for a character that Tyrion encounters at the end of a storm of swords and has a significant arc with in a dance with dragons. And that is the character of Penny, the dwarf, uh, who is actually important and a good character. And if you don't believe that you're stupid and ugly. Um, but I don't think that's something that someone that George originally had in, in mind when he's writing this Tyrion chapter, I think that he, that she became, um, she became much more integral to the f the formulation of writing a dance with dragons and in a storm of swords. She's introduced as a as a nameless dwarf who rides a rides a pig, um, which is a part of the dance of dragons as well. Um, but I, I I was I was curious about this because I think this speaks to Tyrion's psychology, a bit of his self loathing, um, which is becomes very very important come a dance with dragons. But I also think it's really interesting that George integrates a character like Penny into Tyrion's A Dance with Dragons arc because it gives Tyrion a contrast of who he is as a Lannister versus how the rest of the dwarves and the world of ice and fire, whether that's Westeros or Essos, how they live, how they endure, and the social stigma and really horror that's visited on them by the people, by the big people in, in the story, as Penny calls them. And, and I do think it's a great way of, of, of showing Tyrion kind of how, how good he has it. But I was curious because, I mean, you've done a whole lot of writing about Tyrion in A Dance of Dragons, and Penny was a big feature of part of your writing. So I was curious to some of your thoughts about Tyrion, some of self-loathing, some of why Tyrion was in the – why Penny, rather, was in the story and what she means to Tyrion in in A Dance of Dragons and what maybe she will mean to Tyrion come the Winds of Winter. Yeah, uh, 
I do agree that it's not direct foreshadowing of Penny. I guarantee George didn't have her in mind at this point. But it fits because his relationship with Penny flows so organically from the mindset you see revealed in that line, which is, as you said, is very indicative of Tyrion's self-loathing. And the way he's he's become convinced that he can never be loved. And he's convinced of that for a number of reasons. One is because the constant social stigma he faces for being a dwarf. The other is what happened with Taisha and the, the false revelation that she uh, pretended to love him for money. So he's that's another layer to yes. it. And that and the relationships within his family that have been that have been so poisoned and degraded and convinced him that if he wasn't worthy of his father's love, if he believes, I think at some level he feels guilty about Joanna, even though he knows logically he shouldn't. Yes. I think he's just the fact that it's been hammered into his head that he should, I think has convinced him at some level that it's true. Yes. And so as much as he resents how he's treated by the world around him, part of him feels like he deserves it or that, that at least it's the natural order and it's the way things have to be. And so he doesn't, the last thing he wants to do is to, to see people as other people see him and to have that mirror, like you say. And that's why Penny gets under his skin so much is because uh, Penny, by nature of being not only a dwarf, but a poor dwarf, has had to learn to be very subservient. Yes. And very smiling and always catering. And, like, that really makes Tyrion... He really gets Tyrion resentful because his only weapon against a society that treated him this way was that he gets to snap back. Like, as I said earlier, Sandor can get away with talking, like, very mockingly to Tyrion. But Tyrion can also get away with calling Sandor... Saying to Sandor, be a good dog and remind him. (laughs) Like, Tyrion gets to say that because of his social status. Whereas if a poor dwarf said anything resembling that to Sandor Clegane, they'd be dead. Right. So Tyrion, Penny forces Tyrion to face that, in the same way I was talking a little bit about John earlier, that there are different kinds of privilege. And while Tyrion has certainly faced discrimination as a dwarf, there's always been a layer of wealth and status insulating him from the worst treatment yes. that dwarves get in this time and place. And that, that puts his self-loathing in a new light and forces him to consider, you know, how much of his attitude is under his control. And it's something that he has in common with uh, with Jamie in terms of Jamie believing that he's always going to be thought of as the Kingslayer, and then Ned judged him without even knowing him. So what's the point in trying to get any better? You see it with uh, Stannis, who uh, you know tells Davos that you know the people never loved him, so why would he bother trying to win? You know, right. hold on to something he never had, uh, or saying that tell, telling John that the people will just always see him as another doomed pretender. And you see it with John that he. He's got this chip on his shoulder in Storm and Dancer because he's the turncloak and the bastard in the warg that he's not even going to bother trying explaining his policies right. because people are just going to hate him anyway. And it's it's a sympathetic thing in that it's internalized self-loathing from other people treating these guys badly and never giving them their due. But it's uh, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in that they guarantee that people continue to think of them that way because they, they never challenge it and they, they never... They, again, they treat it as natural law rather than some a, a decision people right. are making about them. And it's 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 a very definitely sad, wretched kind of feature of Tyrion's chapters that the empathy he tries to extend to uh, bastards, cripples, and broken things, uh, he he kind of withholds from Penny because it's so close to home with Penny. Yeah, and it gets it gets it gets at his own issues, and he can't with Bran. I think he can kind of comfortably externalize it like this is a helpless young man that I am just giving a hand to. But with Penny, it's like if he starts, if he's nice to her, then he he has to admit that someone could be nice to him. 
And if he starts thinking about that, that kind of unravels the defense mechanism he's building around himself in dance where everything is shit and nothing means anything and he can't trust anybody. And there's Penny who trusts him and is, is, is still trying to hold on to her best self, even as a dwarf who's treated far worse than he is. And I think that's that's why he really he, he treats Penny so poorly. And which I'm not excusing, I'm just saying I think that's the that's the in story justification for it is is like you say, he doesn't he doesn't want the mirror you see it already in his very first POV yeah. chapter of the as much as he loves to read, as much as he loves to read the world around him, the one, the, the subject he can't stand is himself. Yeah, that that self-loathing is so crucial for Tyrion Lannister. Um, it, it's it's interesting that he's 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 definitely very smart and he's very uh, read in on the world around him, but he's almost he he does he does do this eventually, but he's almost finds the idea of self-reflection to be uh, too much really to it, it's beyond the pale. And, and I understand f- for him in, in that he's, he's subject to a whole lot of terrible things from his childhood, you know, Tywin saying you who killed your mother to his first marriage ending in just utter brutality and horror. Um, and, and him being, but, him being marginalized for being a dwarf, even as as a member of House Lannister and being the son of one of the highest lords in all of Westeros, alleged son of one of the highest lords of all of Westeros. Uh, I'm always just going to try and like twist that knife a little bit to, to Emmett, even though he's laughing on the other side of this, this Skype call. <laughs> but uh, I, I can't help myself. Um, but, but no, it's... It, I know Jeff. I know you can't. I forgive it's, you. Uh, Keep I going. love you too. Um, so it's it, it's it's so it's so great. I, I think I have um, when I when I read A Dance with Dragons, I found like many readers did and still do Penny to be a a meaningless character, a filler character, some a place where George kind of lost the momentum of Tyrion's arc because it was interesting having him being with Aegon. And John Cunnington and the um, the rest of the, uh, the the characters on the boat, and then Illyria before him. Uh, but Penny, I was like, man, this can we get can we get to the good stuff? Can we get Tyrion down to Marine as quickly as possible and have him encounter Daenerys Targaryen? But I, I and I and I will recommend our the person that we Emma and I both admire greatly as well. Although Emma has written a fantastic series on Tyrion. Uh, Adam Fellman wrote a great series on Tyrion as well um, a few years ago. Actually, probably, it's getting close to five years now. I can't, or four or five years since since he wrote that. Uh, he wrote a piece all about Tyrion and Penny and why Tyr- why Penny is important to Tyrion's arc. And that Penny shows Tyrion that you can still be a good person even though the world is terrible to you. And you know, Tyrion has suffered a lot, but he he hasn't had his own brother killed because of the person that he's with. They think that they was it Opo is killed because they think that that he's Tyrion or he's potentially could be Tyrion with his head delivered to Cersei. Right. Am, am I, I'm remembering that correctly. Uh, okay, yes. That was, that's what happened. <sighs> I always worry about that when I'm kind of, when I don't have notes in front of me that I'm, I'm looking through. Um, but Penny is still optimistic and is, showing resiliency despite the terrible things visit on him. Whereas Tyrion is mired in this depression and mired in this 
self-loathing and hatred for his family and hatred for the entire world and wants to come back and haunt the world of Westeros when he dies as a, as a ghost. Like you, like Tyrion's like mindset is in a really dark place early in A Dance of Dragons. And then Penny comes along and shows Tyrion how good he's had it. And then furthermore, goes on to show that you can be optimistic and good in this world. And there is a sense too that maybe Penny is a little too good for this world and that her naivety comes through very strongly. Um, and, and it ends up really pissing Tyrion off uh, towards the end of A Dance of Dragons in, in ways that are, are kind of hard to read. Um, like where, where you know, Tyrion lies to her and tells her that, that her pig crunch is going to be just fine. Yeah, he'll be, he'll be fine. Um, but then later reveals that he's probably dead and you should just kind of get over it. And then Tyrion and then Penny is, 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 you know, obviously upset because she lost her, her prized animal. And then Tyrion slaps her, right? Like it's, 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 it's hard to read um, Tyrion kind of regressing a bit at the end of A Dance of Dragons where Penny, where Tyrion starts to kind of almost regain a bit of his humanity early in his reaction, his interactions with Penny in some of these really hard places and being aboard the ship and then becoming slaves with Penny as well. And then as Tyrion res- begins to resume his power, um, taking over the Second Sons, slowly but surely, in a slow-motion coup, um, maybe, as we'll find out, come the winds of winter, um, he begins to mistreat Penny and becomes physically abusive to her, um, slaps her. And then even, you know, as we get into the winds of winter in Tyrion's second chapter, he, um, and this this will, again, as we talked about, um, there are spoilers for the Winds of Winter in this, in this, this chapter, but uh, at the beginning of the Battle of Fire, he is with Penny, watching the dragons fight overhead, and he's listening to people die all around him. And uh, Penny says that she's frightened as, as she's watching all of these things go on about him, and Tyrion gets really angry at him, and uh, really, rather really angry at her. And he begins to fantasize about her being Shay, and he starts thinking, "If only I had a crossbow. If only I had, if only I had the bow and then and the bolts. If only, if only, if only, if only." And the dragons appear and interrupt his thoughts. But he's his his rage at Penny is becoming much much more pronounced as the Battle of Fire is progressing, and in such a way. Almost, I would say, is that this rage is progressing in such a way that it's reflecting his self-loathing. So his self-loathing is so much at this point in the story. He's looking at Penny and he wants to fucking kill her. And that's just really hard to read. And I've got my doubts whether Penny will survive the Winds of Winter. But I guess, you know, as as we say every week, uh, with the Winds of Winter coming out next week, I guess we'll we'll find out for sure. Uh, come Wednesday or Thursday? can't remember. Well said, sir. Any day now, <laughs> as I keep saying, any day now. <laughs> But I agree. I agree, especially with what you said there about Tyrion's rage towards Penny being proportionate with his self-loathing, uh, because she's, you know, reflecting a very honest reaction to the world around him. But he can't stand that because he's he's cutting himself off from all honest emotional reactions, yes. and because he thinks he thinks vulnerability got him where he is, like he was vulnerable to Shay. And that's what screwed him over. And he was vulnerable to Jamie, and that's what screwed him over. And he's vulnerable to Taisha, and that you know he he strapped on armor to defend King's Landing, and and then the city turned on him anyway. Yes. So I feel that that that's that heavily plays into it in terms of his his treatment of Penny. But yeah, it 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 puts him it puts him in a very dark position where he's trying to abandon the human race basically, and he's trying to kill off the the best part of himself and the part that still cares. Yeah. 
and that's that's brutal to watch and it's it's but it's an exaggeration and a distortion of what we see in this chapter it's not completely divorced right. from it because the same anger that causes him to slap Joffrey is this it's the same instinct that causes him to slap right. Benny it's just that the target in the latter case is so innocent and so unjustified that it allows us to see more clearly the troubling aspects of the rage where it's easier to swallow when it's taken out on a target that we are already inclined to dislike. Right. Yeah. I mean, Penny is sympathetic to us. I mean, you might dislike her because you're an idiot and you're ugly um, as, as a character, but you're, but you're in a dance of dragons, but you're not, I've yet to meet anyone who's like, oh man, like she's as awful as Joffrey. And if you do think that you're probably a psychopath and should be treated for mental illness, um, no offense to those who actually suffer from mental illness. Maybe I should cut that. We'll find out. Um, but, <laughs> but no, but you're not so you, if, if Tyrion ends up killing Penny, which I think is a, a possibility in the winds of winter, it's going to be a horrific event. It's, it's not going to be, it's, it's not even going to be as cathartic as Tyrion shooting Tywin with the crossbow bolt as much as that was an act of, maybe murder I, I guess we, we kind of get like in all sorts of like ethical contortions trying to talk about was Tyrion justified in killing Tywin maybe I, I guess I'm inclined I'm inclined to give him a pass for killing Tywin killing Shay yeah. for me is the, the less less forgivable one to be honest Tywin Tywin earned his death as much as any possible human can possibly earn a crossbow bolt to the groin Tywin had it from, from Tyrion especially Tywin had it coming killing Shay I think is the more disturbing one and the more where you see him slapping Penny. I think there's more of a connection there in terms of like specific, specifically, and this is not something that really comes up in this chapter, but Tyrion's relationship to women as, as just like his dad uh, reveals some of the darkest parts of him, because that's really when this like desire for control and sense of entitlement comes to the fore um, where Tyrion, Tyrion treats women like when they're not pleasing him, like they're machines that aren't working properly. Yeah. And that he just needs to fix so they make him happy again. And that is something I think he gets very strongly from his dad. And that's is something we'll be going into uh, when, when Shay comes into the story for sure. Yes, that is going to be a uh, – and, and, and Tyrion's relationship with his father, Tywin, I don't even think it's mentioned in this chapter, is it? Excellent point for something that so dominates his character. I, th- I think you're right that Tywin does not come up in this chapter. He will come up in the next Tyrion yes. chapter uh, and a bunch going forward. So. Yeah, that's the something we'll have to note as we go forward in Game of Thrones is the build up to the introduction of Tywin starts to become uh, a running thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely is. So, well, I think that about wraps us up for this episode. Uh, as we say every week, thank you everyone for listening. It's it's such a pleasure to do these these episodes and a pleasure to talk with you, Emmett, and to interact with you guys as on social media throughout the week. Um, Emmett and I, so if, if you guys are ever curious about who's on working the, um, the not a cast ASOAF, uh, Twitter account is both of us. And you'll never know which one it is of us. Who is actually behind the account or uh, it could be a rubber, o- the robot overlord as well. I mean, he's, he, he plays a part too in that, in the Twitter account from time to time. Just a bit, just a bit. He likes, he likes to, to check in every so often. Yeah, for sure. But uh, yeah, thanks again for listening as always, guys. Uh, you can rate and review us on iTunes and, and Google Play and call us very feminine and soy boys. I'd like to <laughs> uh, bring more one-star reviews yes, our way. Please. Uh, you can find us on social media, as Jeff just mentioned, at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, uh, Twitter, and our email, notacast, A-S-O, uh, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. 
Individually speaking, you can find me at poorquentin.tumblr.com and send me asks there, or you can just hit me up at poorquentin on Twitter. You can find me at Brendan B. Fish on Twitter and Brendan B. Fish on Reddit if you want to shoot me a, a direct message. I do read them. I will not always respond, but I do read every message that I get. And uh, our Patreon is live at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-F. So as we mentioned it at the beginning of the show, check out our reward tiers there with some great stuff, including early episodes. Uh, special episodes, show notes, etc. that you can get as part of supporting the show. And uh, you can join us next week for our uh, second POV chapter from Jon Snow, where we'll discuss a totally non-controversial subject within the fandom, which is Catelyn Stark's <laughs> treatment of Jon. Oh, I expect gosh. nothing but harmony yes. and good feelings and consensus on this issue. And there will be no, no fights. No, at all. There will be no Twitter fights. No, none at all. That's, that's not what we're about. We're not about Twitter fights whatsoever. We, we will in no way be calling people ugly for their incorrect opinions. Or stupid. I, I don't know where people get the idea that we do this, but it's not. It's, it's, it's not. No. No. I don't think. We haven't even done that. We never did that in this episode either. Multiple times. In the penny discussion. Certainly not. You, who are you going to believe? Us or your lying <laughs> Well, guys, like, it's, it's like, it's like we always say, it's a real pleasure um, doing this. And uh, we will see you guys next week. Take care, everybody. Nauticast podcast is written and recorded by Poor Quentin and Brendan Beefish. The music you heard is by Cat Nights Begin. The opening song is called Jewel Fruit, and the closing song is called Alaska Goodbye. Thanks everyone for listening, and we will see you all next week. <laughs>